So most of us are familiar with the Omerta, which is the mob code of silence about criminal activity. You know, never give evidence to authorities under any circumstances. You could be shot, stabbed, beat up. Anything the mob has done to you, you're never to open your mouth. You take that oath. So without further ado, today, I'm gonna give y'all my top 10 mob hits. Starting one through 10. And number one being Salvatore Maranzano. I'm starting with him because I gotta start from the beginning. As most of us know, you know, uh, he had another boss rival, Joe the Boss Masseria. They had a turf war. I think it was it was called the Castellamar War from 1929 to 1932. And um, this was before the commission and all of that. <clears throat> but both of them wanted to be the boss of New York, you know, and Maranzano, he was successful with bootlegging. But Joe the Boss was just doing a little more and he was looked at as the boss of the bosses in New York. So Lucky Luciano, at the time, being an up-and-coming mobster, you know, he ran a crew under Joe the Boss, you know, and as everybody heard the story that the younger mobsters, they weren't really feeling the war because they knew that they weren't making any money from it and it was going to make the money slim up. So they knew that both of the bosses eventually had to go, but when Maranzano was on the verge of winning the war, Lucky had decided to switch sides later on on Joe the Boss. And Joe the Boss was actually murdered first. But these are my particular top tens, so I didn't put it in order of who got killed first. But, uh, yeah, Lucky and Maranzano, they planned to hit on Joe the Boss, and they were successful. Um, that then made him, Maranzano, top of the food chain, you know, boss of the bosses. Then at that point, he started to organize the gangs into the families, which was the start of the five families in New York. But they had said that um, Maranzano had got too big-headed and he didn't even want to deal with, you know, Jewish gangsters anymore. But as we know, Marlansky was Jewish and he was Luciano's right-hand man. So at that time, they weren't feeling how he was going to run the business like this without him. So, you know, they ended up setting him up. But what Lucky didn't know is that Maranzano already knew that Lucky was going to try to kill him. So what Maranzano did was he went and hired a hitman to kill Luciano and Genovese. The hitman that he hired was Vincent Mad Dog Cole. But Marlansky had tipped off Luciano and, you know, had let him know that Maranzano was trying to kill him. So what Luciano did was he had put together this four-man team real quick before Maranzano struck to go and get him and they did this was in 1931 the hitman had entered the building they said to um, Maranzano's office on the ninth floor and they were disguised as tax men like raiding the building and the people that were guarding they had been you know disarmed because you know thinking this is law enforcement and a lot of people left the building including Vincent Mad Dog Cole. He was about to actually sit in a meeting with uh, Maranzano. But they say the story is that, you know, Samuel Levine, Joe Adonis, Vito Genovese, and Albert Anastasia, they came into the office and pinned him and his workers to the wall. And then they, I think they say they stabbed him four times with stomach, chest, and the face. 
you know, they sliced his mouth, strangled him, and shot him six times. Yeah, so that was my number one, guys. That was kind of brutal. <laughs> got his mouth sliced, he got shot six times, got stabbed four times in the stomach, chest, and the face. That's tough. Now we're going to go with number two, Joe the Boss Masseria. Obviously, this hit is connected to the last one. I was going to do Joe the Boss first, but the Maranzano hit was just a little more disrespectful to me. So that was my number one, you know, adding up to 10 or whatever. But as I was talking about before, you know, the younger crowd of gangsters, you know, Luciano, Meyer, Lansky, and them, you know, they were sick of the, like, old ways of the bosses and how they were running things and too many rules. And they knew that if they got rid of Joe the boss, since he was the biggest boss, they could start from there. So again, Luciano, he masterminded another hit. And this is on Joe the boss. You know, it was Joe the boss, his bodyguards, and Luciano, they met up at his favorite restaurant in Coney Island. They came in, they sat down, they ate, they played a little game of cards, and then it was time for the magic to happen. Luciano excused himself to the bathroom. That was the signal for the killers to come and do the job. <clears throat> it was a kind of a big debate, they say, about who were the shooters and things like that. It was said that it was Genevieve, Siegel, Joe Adonis, and Anastasia. But, you know, after some eyewitnesses, too, you know, they said they only seen two people pull up next to um, Joe the boss's car outside. A lot of people say it was, you know, just Bugsy Siegel and Anastasia. But from the police report, they say they found two guns in a nearby alley. So whatever type of sense that makes. They even said the restaurant owner had something to do with it. You know, they had some evidence that, you know, the owner had told one of his friends that night that showed up out of the blue in the middle of everything. It was like, you gotta leave now. Don't tell anybody you was here type of thing, you know? But um, they say that it was 20 shots that were fired at Masseria. He got hit four times, the head and the back. And they left him with the famous Ace of Spade card in his hand, as you see in all the pictures. By the way, nobody was arrested for his murder. So with number one and number two out of the way, the big bosses, we can get into my number three. Joe Colombo. The thing about Joe, he was a boss like similar to John Gotti as far as him like loving the media and things like that. Also, he was a key speaker. In the 70s, he created the Italian American Civil Rights League. This was a group dedicated to fighting stereotypes about Italians, and he was successful at it. You know, um, he made a few mistakes that would lead to his downfall, though. And the first one being like the Godfather movie. Paramount Pictures worked closely with Columbo because they wanted his input in the movie. Um, they sent him all the scripts and all, and um, Columbo had overlooked them and told them to remove the mentions of Costa Nostra and anything like that was mafia. And back in the 60s, there was a war between the Gallo brothers and the Columbo Profaci leadership. They said that Gallo wanted more money and kidnapped Columbo and Profaci. Joe Gallo got released from prison after 10 years, I think it was like 1971 for extortion and conspiracy. When he got home, he got offered a $1,000 peace offering, you know, from Colombo, but Gallo had refused it and whatnot. And shortly after that, he had a contract put on his head. In June 1971, Joe was attending a rally at Columbus Circle, and as he was making his way to the stage, a man said to be Jerome A. Johnson, acted as a photographer, 
and walked up on him and shot him three times in the head close range. But at the same time, Jerome had been shot by a bodyguard of Colombo's. Also, Colombo didn't die right away. He was stuck in a coma for seven years and he died in 1978. But most people believe that the decision was made by the commission because it was getting too public and playing the mafia in the public eye too much. A couple years after the shooting, the Godfather movie will still be released. As we get into number four, Dutch Schultz. Dutch made his money through bootlegging and numbers rackets. His business was threatened by Lucky Luciano and tax evasion trials from Thomas Dewey. Being afraid of being convicted, Dutch went to the commission and he asked for that word to kill Thomas Dewey. The commission didn't feel like it would be a good decision or be good for business. It would make things messy, you know. Um, they said that Dutch was so mad that he stormed out of the meeting and he said he was still going to kill Thomas Dewey within 48 hours. So then his murder was ordered in 1935. He got shot once near the heart in the bathroom of the palace chop house. He did manage to make it out of the bathroom and stumble to the table and he sat down face down on the table. But he didn't die right away. He was taken to the hospital and they performed surgery on him, guessing that he would make it. But he wasn't gonna make it because the bullets that they used were rust coated. So even if he wouldn't make it, he would have died from a bloodstream infection from the rusty bullets. He lasted about 22 hours. Charles Workman and Mindy Weiss, two members of the Murder Inc. crew, were said to do this hit. Okay, let's get into number five, Albert Anastasia. He was the leader of Murder, Inc., and he had a close relationship with Lucky Luciano and Frank Costello back in the 40s and 50s. He was an underboss for Vincent Magnu, but Vincent didn't really like Anastasia because he would do jobs on the side for Luciano and Costello without his approval. You know, and throughout the time, things started to get heated in the situation, and Magnu all of a sudden went missing, and so did his brother, Philip. You know, um... And I think it was said that um, Maganu was never found and his brother Philip was found in the wetlands and he was shot about three times. So with Maganu gone, this kind of left a spot open for the boss spot and Anastasia would take the boss spot. Costello, he was just happy to have protection for Vito Genovese. He had Joe Bonanno and Luciano in his corner. But the family eventually went to the Anastasia family. But Genovese had a plan, and he was determined to come boss no matter what, you know. And all he had to really do was get Frank Costello out of the way. But he couldn't get Frank out of the way without getting Anastasia out of the way. And getting the okay from Maya Lansky, who was the boss at the time, because Luciano had went to prison. You follow? And then um, Genovese had strike Frank Costello, and... I think this was in 1957 and Frank Costello he stepped down as the boss and a few months later a hit was placed on Anastasia he was actually at a barber shop at the Sheridan Inn his bodyguards like at the time had went for a walk and some people say the bodyguards were in, in on it and some say they weren't you know what I mean it's a back and forth story you know what I'm saying but they said as Anastasia was sitting in the barber chair you know the man rushed in the shop just started spraying bullets everywhere you know what I mean and there was another debate about him being shot out of the chair he was ejected out of the chair or something like that but you know come to find out he actually got up out of the chair and charged at the men as they were shooting him but he still died you know right then and there it was actually 11 witnesses 
and 10 shots fired or 10 shots fired and 11 witnesses. It was one or the other. Another man, Joey Gallo, he was said to lead the team of assassins that, you know, that shot Anastasia. But nobody really knows. Some question, okay, why would a Pavacci member kill Anastasia? Because Joe Pavacci allied with Anastasia back in the day. You know, but after all the mayhem and the fighting, you know, Genovese, he had only seen the top for like a short amount of time. You know, and this was around the time the largest mob meeting police had ever raided had happened. You know, this is when Genevieve's credibility started going out the window. You know, everybody turned against him. Lansky, Luciano, Gambino, and Costello. They had teamed up on him to go against him on a narcotics charge. And um, Genevieve ended up spending the rest of his life in prison. All right, we're going to move on to number six, Angelo Bruno. He was known as the gentle Don. You know, he was the type that liked to settle things on paper rather than killing people. In 1959, he took over the Philadelphia crime family until 1980 when he died. He had a lot of enemies in his time as boss because he was making a lot of money with the heroin market in Philadelphia. And, you know, at that time, the rest of the families, like, they didn't distribute narcotics, you know. And they said Tony Bonanno was said to order the hit and whatnot. You know, it's not a whole lot to this story, but Angelo ended up dying from a shotgun blast in the back of the head while he was sitting in the car. And he was sitting in the car with the future boss at the time, John Stanford. You know, and at the end of his murder, they actually stuffed dollar bills in his anus and his mouth to symbolize the greed. All right, y'all, let's get into number eight, Carmen Galante. Carmen, he was the boss of the Bonanno family when he got assassinated and whatnot. He was loyal to his former boss, Joe Bonanno. He was a major part of getting the heroin from Sicily to America, you know what I mean? Um, And most people say it was his greed that played a part in his downfall, too. He wanted to control the narcotics market and whatnot, and that was upsetting the other families. And, you know, it just wasn't a good idea for him, you know, and, and you know, and he never shared any profits with them as well. So the families definitely wasn't feeling that. On July 12, 1979, in Brooklyn, Carmen was assassinated at an Italian restaurant in Brooklyn on an open patio as he just finished eating lunch. He was with his bodyguard, another capo, a soldier and a restaurant owner and when they had open fire on everybody they left two men shot in the back of the head and the third man received a gunshot blast to the chest knocking him straight off his chair and onto the ground and you know who this was this was Carmen the two other men at the table they were unharmed so people were saying that his own crime family set him up and Carmen himself he died with a cigar still grip type to his teeth okay guys we can go into number eight Bugsy Siegel See, Bugsy, he was one of the more popular gangsters in the 30s and 40s. He had charisma. They say he looked like a movie star. But Bugsy was really a ruthless gangster. You know what I mean? And um, <clears throat> he was one of the main forces that helped develop Las Vegas Strip. You know, and that's a tourist area now for like millions of people. But before his death, he had got kind of careless with mafia money. You know, they even thought he was stealing money. You know, Meyer Lansky, they say, had warned him numerous times. But, you know, he kind of ignored it. So in 1946, the commission held a meeting. And Lucky was in Sicily at the time, so they held a meeting in Havana, Cuba, so he could be there. At the meeting, you know, they discussed Bugsy, and the situation came up about him, and um, they felt like he had to go. And Meyer Lansky, being his friend, he agreed. So on June 20th, 1947, Siegel was sitting in Virginia Hills, his girlfriend's Beverly Hills home, and he was reading a copy of the Los Angeles Times. 
and he was hit with military gray ammo that had sprayed the whole house, you know, numerous times. He had got hit on the right side of his head, on the bridge of his nose, and the bullets that hit his nose actually blew his eye out of the socket. The others in his head, chest, and neck. That was a real brutal murder. All right, y'all, we're going to get into my number nine, Paul Castellano. We all know Paul took over the family after Carlos' death in 1976. But, you know, we all know that Paul was more of a businessman. You know, he wanted to be more public, like a public figure. You know, but he wasn't really a stranger to violence. But when he did use violence, it was more strategic. You know what I'm saying? Um, they say they, that, that he made the mob fortunes, yeah. But he started to get real greedy, too. He started pushing the percentages that he was getting from the crews from 10 to 15 percent and people weren't liking that you know what i'm saying and one man obviously <laughs> that didn't like it was john Gotti. you know um he felt like paul was too greedy and you know he just got handed the job like you know without putting in any work also everybody was feeling some kind of way because he had skipped the wake of neil della croce who was Gotti's boss at the time <clears throat> On top of that, you know, Gotti had been promoted to Capo after Neil died, you know, and they got into narcotics trafficking, and the boss told him not to narcotics traffic. Angelo Ruggiero and Gotti's brother had got arrested on drug charges, so Castellano was planning on splitting up the group anyway, and Gotti knew distributing narcotics behind the boss's back probably would end up, you know, getting them killed. So Gotti knew he had to strike first, and he did. December 16, 1985, Castellano and his driver Tommy Bellotto were gunned down by four men with trench coats as they pulled up to get out of the car at the Spark Steakhouse. Tommy Bellotto was shot six times in the head and the chest and laid outside of the car. Paul was inside the car shot to death. John watched from the other cars this happened across the street and they say he drove by to get a closer view of the bodies before they left. Alright y'all we're gonna get into number 10 and my final one, Abe Rellis. He was a successful hitman for Murder Inc. He used to use an ice pick on his victims and pushing it through their ears until it reached their brain and kill them. Ooh, that's crazy. But he was also charged with a lot of these murders in 1940. You know, and to save himself from the death penalty, he started to tell on people. And this was including another Murder Inc. associate, Louis Lefty, for killing the candy store owner. And the next person he was going to tell on was Albert Anastasia. And, you know, Relis was the only person to testify against Anastasia for killing the longshoreman. In 1941, but without Relis, you know, Anastasia walks free, you know. So, with his connections to the five families, of course, you know, and the help of Frank Costello, one of the guards was given $100,000 to walk. He was under FBI protection, and being that he was about to get information, something had to be done. And it did. On the same day of the trial, Relis was pushed out the window in 1941 at the Half Moon Hotel in Coney Island same day as the trial that's crazy there were no suspects and the case was ruled an accident he had a nickname as well they called him the canary that could sing but he couldn't fly <laughs> i thought that was crazy <laughs> but appreciate y'all for tuning in to another episode of the most notorious gangsters in the world top 10 mob hit edition content comes out twice a week y'all be sure to subscribe i'm out happy halloween peace Keep the change, you filthy animal.